I'm Faz Shakir. I'm Amanda Littman. And this is Battleground, a podcast from The Recount and iHeartRadio. Listen every Thursday as we answer the questions about politics you didn't even know you should be asking. Our guest this week is Ari Berman. He's a senior reporter at Mother Jones and author of the great book on voting rights, Give Us the Ballot, The Modern Struggle for Voting Rights in America. We are talking voter suppression. So my question for us, Faz, is how fucked are we? How screwed up is our democracy? How broken is this system? Well, Amanda, the hard thing about voting rights as a conversation is that the conservative strategy is to really make you cynical, Mm -hmm. to make you depressed, to make you feel disenfranchised, to throw up your hands and say, this is some bullshit and I'm not going to participate. I mean, we run into this in ways big and small. Like when you're talking about, do you have a plan to vote? You never want to talk about how you might have to plan to wait in line. You never want to mention how it could take you a couple hours. You never want to talk about the barriers to entry. And in a lot of places, those are real. (laughs) I think it's a real tension that comes into play, especially for Democrats who are trying to be pro-democracy without inspiring people to feel disillusioned about democracy. Yeah. And I I think we'll have this conversation. We'll get into it with Ari a bit. There's a tension of fighting back on the right-wing efforts to suppress the vote, but also fighting on our side, not getting too wrapped up into that such that we forget that what we really need to be focused on is expanding vote, like making it easier for people and to be talking about that, right? Things like a voting rights holiday is a good thing. Like, let's push for it. Let's try to get it done and give people a vision of exactly why we believe what we believe. Mm-hmm. I've worked on voting rights for a while, and at the ACLU is one of the areas that actually drew me into that organization. And for people who are kind of entering into this conversation without a lot of history on voting rights, I tend to group things around these three Ps. And I'll just share them with you, (laughs) Amanda. Yeah. And it's not meant to capture everything, but one is the place. When I say place, where do you vote? And when we talk about voter repression, there's lots of fights over, you know, partisan gerrymandering that if you are a certain voter in a certain place, we can move you to vote in a different place. And so that's one of the elements to always be thinking about in voter suppression. The other one is around process. And on Process, you've got the fact that Republicans for a long time have made it a lot harder to vote. They want to make you more cynical. So they fight against things like a voting holiday, giving you water at the polling place. They just want you to feel like it's generally a much more difficult process to vote than it should be. The other you know, last element of the P is the pool, the pool of voters. And that's where most of the energy goes into. On the conservative side, there are efforts to shrink the pool of voters. On the progressive side, we want more participation in our democracy. So when you think about those three, it helps me kind of have a way of accessing a lot of the issues that are so deeply embedded in this voting rights fight. Faz, let's assume for the sake of conversation that there is an on-the-level good faith argument for the kinds of voter integrity or election integrity, I'm doing air quotes here, laws that they're pushing forward. What does that argument sound like? Well, if you're looking in private rooms that Republicans talk to each other about voting rights, not that you and I are in those rooms, but I don't think that there are many good faith arguments being had. I do think that there's really just a partisan conversation. This helps us. This doesn't help us. But then their challenge is obviously now they have to message on it. And that's where I think they do a lot of work to concoct and build cases You see this on ID check all the time. Well, I use my driver's license to go get alcohol. 
I have to go use my ID to get on an airplane. So that's really kind of the heart of where their efforts are, is really trying to manipulate into public arguments that can have some degree of resonance to a layperson. And I think to their credit, they have concocted some messages that do twist Democrats into knots sometimes as we try to explain why we want more participation, why it should be easier. And a lot of this is at the heart of there actually isn't voter fraud. So what are you, what problems are you trying to address? There is no voter fraud. And the only people who've ever been convicted of voter fraud, not only, but the few people who've recently been convicted of voter fraud have been Republicans trying to steal elections. But you did mention the ID question, which I think is one that often people get a little confused about. Can you explain the context? Any hurdle that you would institute makes it obviously harder for people to vote. Then the question is, do you want to institute that hurdle? right? Do you want to make it a little bit harder to vote? And then you weigh the benefits and the costs here. So you go through that cost-benefit analysis and you say, okay, well, what problem are you trying to address if you want to institute an ID? Well, the argument has to be that there's fraud, that somehow people are voting twice or they are voting where they shouldn't be allowed to. And as you mentioned in your question, Amanda, that's not the case. There's no evidence of that. And so then what is the reason? Obviously, it's a not-so-subtle effort to make it harder for generally historically disenfranchised populations to get enfranchised. Okay, Faz, I think it's time to bring Ari into the conversation. He has quite literally written the book on voting rights over the last 50 years. We're going to ask him, how fucked are we? And I think he's going to have really interesting answers. Let's bring Ari in. Ari Berman, welcome to Battleground. Hey, Faz. Hey, Amanda. Great to see you guys. And congrats on your new podcast. Very exciting. Thanks. I should say you're rebranded. 2.0 podcast. Relaunched. Ari, our big question for today is how fucked are we? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I would say pretty fucked, (laughs) but also the fucked meter depends on what happens next. Like we could be really, really fucked if no action is taken to fix our democracy, or we could be a lot less fucked <laughs> if we actually do something to protect our democracy. So I guess the jury's still out on how fucked we are, but it's not feeling great at the moment. Can you set the context here? What does the voter suppression landscape look like right now? It's really crazy. The fact that there have been 361 bills introduced in 41 states in the first three months of this year to make it harder to vote. We haven't seen anything like that in decades. Voter suppression obviously is not a new thing. I mean, I've been covering this topic for a decade. It existed for decades before I started talking about it, before you guys started talking about it. Mm -hmm. But it has dramatically escalated. And I think what the Republican Party did is they took an existing strategy and then they just took it to the next level. And it was predicated on Donald Trump trying to overturn the 2020 election. It was predicated on an insurrection that tried to violently throw out millions of votes. And then they have now weaponized those things to try to essentially accomplish the goals of Trump and the insurrection (laughs) through more respectable means and to try to do through legislation what they couldn't accomplish through litigation and intimidation in 2020. I want to get into a little bit of the philosophy of the right. I read an article this week in the Conservative National Review that you may have seen written by Kevin Williamson. The title of it was called 
Why not fewer votes? <laughs> he says, I'll quote from the article, much of the discussion about proposed changes to voting laws backed by many Republicans and generally opposed by Democrats begs the question and simply asserts that having more people vote is a good thing. Why should we believe that? Why shouldn't we believe the opposite, that the Republic would be better served by having fewer but better voters, end quote. All right, there it is, out loud, that basically there's a concern with base more people voting. wonder if you could unpack that and give us a philosophical response and retort to this. Not that long ago, you had a state legislator in Arizona who also said the same thing, that we shouldn't be dealing with the quantity of votes, but the quality of votes. And of course, this was the same rhetoric that was used to justify Jim Crow for so many years. You had white politicians in the South and in the North who said, Blacks can't be trusted with the franchise. They're not educated enough. They're not refined enough. They can't pass a literacy test. They can't pay a poll tax. So therefore, they can't be trusted with the franchise. And it's fascinating that that argument was made in National Review because National Review has been making that argument for a very long time. You go back and you read this editorial that William F. Buckley wrote, I believe it was in 1957, basically saying, should whites be able to prevail even in states in which they're outnumbered numerically? And he said, yes, because the white race is superior to the black race. I mean, it's like shocking stuff that the, basically the elder statesman of the conservative movement was saying. And National Review opposed the Voting Rights Act in 1965. And they basically said, I mean, they did say literally, Southern Negroes aren't educated enough to be able to vote. And when black voters started voting in Alabama and Mississippi in 1966, 1967, they were mocked by William F. Buckley as saying that this wasn't something to be celebrated. This was something to be feared. And so I think that this editorial really gets to the heart of the conservative movement. They don't believe that more democracy and more political participation is a good thing. They want a situation in which they rule in which democracy is only on their terms. And that's not democracy. That's authoritarianism. When you create a system and you say, only our people can participate or otherwise it's illegitimate, that's not a democracy anymore. And it's also fascinating to me to hear them talk about the educatedness of their voters when just take white voters. College-educated whites are fleeing the Republican Party. So, I mean, the Republican Party under Trump is now a party of white, non-college educated voters. So, like, even if you put an education test on voting, they wouldn't even pass that, let alone the fact that it's just so repugnant to the whole idea of democracy that you say we're better off when fewer people have voted, because that's the exact argument that was used to disenfranchise people for so many years in this country. This outcome that is happening in these Republican-controlled state legislatures is not an accident. It is the byproduct of a decades-long effort to really hold power in these places where you can control the structure of our elections. Can you walk through that long-term strategy the Republican Party has had specifically for this end goal? Yeah, I mean, I think the Republican Party decided that the states were going to be their laboratories for essentially eroding democracy. And that's a long-term strategy, but I think they kicked it into high gear mm -hmm. after Barack Obama's election in 2008, because they were completely frozen out of Washington. So they said, let's take over the states instead. And so that's how they took over Wisconsin and Pennsylvania and North Carolina and Michigan, all of these places they gained at the state level. And they did two things in conjunction. They wrote the redistricting maps, so they basically locked in one-party control. All of these state legislatures, where they were in control in 2011, they're still in control, no matter all of the different shifts that have happened in 2021. And they passed all of these voter suppression bills at the beginning of the last decade. And clearly, that wasn't enough. <laughs> that wasn't enough for them, because 
They had already passed voter suppression bills in Florida, in Georgia, in Texas, and Arizona, but still Democrats were either able to win in these places to overcome these barriers or to make them more competitive. So now they're, they say we need a whole nother round of voter suppression in Georgia, in Arizona, in Texas, because what we did wasn't enough. And then, of course, they're going to do a whole nother round of gerrymandering that's going to try to fortify their power even more. So they make no attempt in these states to try to reach out to a majority of their constituents. They make no attempt to try to work with Democratic officials, where there's a Democratic governor, for example, in Mm -hmm. places like Michigan and Wisconsin and Pennsylvania. Their entire strategy is to entrench power and then to then entrench power some more (laughs) and then entrench power some more. I mean, that's literally all they do is just figure out more and more ways to entrench power because their agenda is so unpopular. That's the only way they can stay in office. And my question always is, you look at Michigan. Michigan elected Democratic governor, Democratic secretary of state, a Democratic AG, voted for Joe Biden. Is the Republican legislature in Michigan so popular that they're the only people that consistently get reelected when Democrats are winning every race? No, they're getting a minority of votes, but they have a majority of power. And to me, that is the biggest problem in American politics right now at the state level and the federal level. It's that popular majorities and popular support doesn't actually translate into shifts in political power. And that's the thing that concerns me the most. And I think it's very, very difficult to think about how to unwind that at the state level in particular Mm -hmm. with Republicans in control of all of these places. And at the same time, within the left or within some of the more like uh, statistical mindset folks, they've been trying to make the case, well, it's not so bad like the Georgia voter suppression laws, for example, because it inspires a backlash that gets more in particular black voters to show up at the polls. It is... One, it is such total bullshit. And two, I think it is emblematic of a kind of democratic mindset of just, you know, assuming that we have to take what Republicans have done to voting rights laws at face value and bake it into our strategy. We're not trying to like mitigate it. We're not trying to reverse it. We're just trying to, okay, they're going to require everyone to get voter IDs to show up at the polls. Let's make sure everyone has IDs instead of actually trying to nibble at the root of the problem. Is there any truth to that argument that voter suppression laws actually increase turnout? Does that have any grounding in reality? Well, I mean, I think you can argue the data a lot of different ways. But the way I approach it is I approach it at a much more philosophical level, Mm -hmm. which is that I believe that voting is a fundamental right, or at least should be a fundamental right, and that you should not restrict voting unless you have a really good reason to. So yeah, people shouldn't vote if they're dead. They can't (laughs) vote anyway. Yeah. People should only vote in the state in which they live. People should only vote if they meet the qualifications for voting. Short of that, I don't really believe that we should restrict voting in this country. So anytime new restrictions are put up, my question is not what will the eventual impact be, but what's the reason for it? Mm -hmm. And is there a reason to try to restrict voting access? And I think that the presumption should be against restricting it unless there's a very strong reason to do so. And I think if you look at Georgia, They had an election in which their own Republican Secretary of State said over and over, the system was fair, it had integrity, it worked. So my starting point is nothing should be changed. Literally nothing should have been changed. Maybe you say we're going to change how you count ballots earlier so it doesn't take so long to get the results. Maybe that would have been the only change I'd make. That would have been my presumption. Why are we changing anything? And then if we are changing things, I would start to ask, well, why are we getting rid of mobile voting units in Fulton County when that increased voter turnout? Why are we banning donations from nonprofits that were used to open State Farm Arena as a mega polling site? 
Why are we getting rid of drop boxes when so many people, including Brian Kemp, use them? Mm -hmm. Why are we cutting back the amount of time that people had for absentee ballots when record numbers of people voted by mail? Why are we allowing unlimited challenges to people's eligibility to vote when right-wing groups challenged 360,000 voters in the last election? Most importantly, why are the GOP legislature taking over the state board of election and then saying you can take over county board of elections when Trump tried to get them to do that very thing to throw out votes in 2020? Those were all the questions I would have asked. I would have posed all of those questions at the beginning. Then I would have said, we don't know the eventual impact of this, but this seems very, very fishy <laughs> to me that all of this stuff was done after Democrats won and Republicans launched an unprecedented propaganda campaign to overturn the election rules. And that, to me, should be it. And basically say, the jury's still out on what the impact will be. Maybe it'll be really suppressive. Maybe it won't be. Maybe it'll lead to a backlash. Maybe it won't be. We don't know. We don't know how all of that's going to play out. But the point is, Georgia Republicans made it harder to vote for no good reason. Battleground is going to take a quick break. Be right back. Battleground is back, and we're here with Ari Berman. I want to talk about the role of money. Ari, in the last few weeks, we have seen a progressive movement that has pushed very aggressively and successfully on the role of big money, big corporate actors, big influence over voter suppression, at least supporting with their money voter suppression architects. And as a result, we see some newfound efforts by corporations to recalibrate, uh, either pull back from those donations they have prior made or make statements outright stating what their positions on voting rights are. I wonder if you could comment on that and whether you see this as a positive thing. Where did this all come from? I do see it as a positive thing because for years I was saying there has to be some accountability for those that try to suppress the vote. There has to be some sort of political payback for them doing it. And you can't just say we're going to vote them out of office because the whole point of voter suppression is to make it harder to vote them out of office. So maybe that'll work. Maybe that won't work. But it relies on a tremendous amount of organizing to do so. And so I think corporate America saying, we're not going to support you. We're either going to denounce you publicly or we're not going to fund you. That gets their attention in a way that a lawsuit from the NAACP might not. You know, So I think it had a big impact. And I think just their epic freakout over losing the All-Star game, I mean, just goes to show you how much they fear this, how much they fear this alliance breaking down and Mitch McConnell basically saying, stay out of it unless you fund us uh, kind of thing, just sort of gave the whole ball game away. I mean, it's a tenuous thing, though. I mean, I don't think the protection of voting rights should depend on Delta or Coca-Cola. I think more often than not, these companies are going to just favor their bottom line. And I think their bottom line is usually going to lead them to people that support corporate interests. But I think in Georgia in particular, the people there were very strategic. They didn't have the votes to defeat this in the legislature. So all they could do was mount a pressure campaign and to say to their allies, you can't be allies with us when it's convenient and then abandon us when it comes to our most fundamental rights. And I think that was a message that corporate America very, very slowly and very, very reluctantly got to and has, I think, half-heartedly embraced because it's not like there's this huge corporate revolt going on. I mean, there's more companies speaking out than before. But in a lot of ways, this has echoes to me of the civil rights movement, which is a lot of people wanted to stay on the sidelines in the 1960s. They didn't want to get involved. They didn't want to get involved in Selma. They didn't want to get involved in Birmingham. They didn't want to get involved in Montgomery. They just wanted to sell their products. And eventually that became untenable. And I think that same kind of situation 
has to exist today where you say voting rights are so fundamental, you can't sit this one out. The thing I worry about, though, is how Republicans are weaponizing it and how now the right to vote is just treated like another cultural issue. Like there's some equivalence between Dr. Seuss <laughs> and MLB pulling out of the all-star game. And like the New York Times was saying, well, Republicans are just going to run on cultural issues in 2022. And I don't doubt that. And they pointed to Major League Baseball pulling out of the all-star game as an example. Like to me, that's not an example of a cultural issue. That's an example of accountability on a really fundamental fight in this country. And so I, I think we have to really push back on how things are being framed because I think after the All-Star game, it felt like, oh, this is a real moment of opportunity. But in the last week or two, it feels like, in fact, Republicans might just use this to their advantage if the entire debate and narrative is taking place on their terms. Not to have any kind of sympathy or empathy for corporations trying to decide how to like wield their political power, but. I do think that they're in a tough spot, assuming that they do have a role to play here, because there is almost no way you can engage with a Republican Party at this point to like give to a Republican RSLC, the committee that does state legislative races, is to support voter suppression. To give to Republican attorney generals is to support voter suppression. To give to Republican governors is to support voter suppression. There is no equal opportunity approach for corporations that might agree with the Republican Party on some kind of pro-corporate stuff, they can't do so on the level. And we've reached a point where the Republican Party is ultimately the anti-democracy party. Is there a path forward to rectifying that? What do we do when we don't have on-the-level opponents? Well, I think that's the question for corporate America is, do they care about profits or do they care about democracy? Mm -hmm. And that's where I, I worry about relying on corporate America as an ally. And that's why I think it would be a lot better if we had fundamental protections for voting rights in place so we didn't have to beg Delta or Coca-Cola <laughs> yeah. to get involved. And the All-Star Game, which is something we could all enjoy because we knew that the courts and the Congress were going to protect our right to vote if state legislatures didn't. And to me, that's the big difference of now versus 20 or 30 years ago. There were efforts to suppress voting rights 20 or 30 years ago, but when they happened, the Congress and the courts acted against them. There was a, even when there were conservative judges on the courts, there was a majority of justices in support of the Voting Rights Act until the Roberts Court took over. And there was always a very strong majority in both parties in support of the Voting Rights Act. It was Bob Dole in 1982 that took on Ronald Reagan to expand the Voting Rights Act. You know, it was Jim Sensenbrenner, a very conservative Republican from Wisconsin, who took on Reagan to restore the Voting Rights Act. So, it wasn't just a fig leaf thing. Like This was something that actually there was a bipartisan majority in Congress and among the courts to support things like the Voting Rights Act. And that's completely gone. And now you're saying, okay, well, if you're in Georgia, we don't control the state legislature. We don't control the governor or any other statewide office. We have allies in Congress, but they're paralyzed because of the filibuster. We can file litigation, but it's going before conservative-dominated courts at every single level, and it just gets worse mm -hmm. in terms of from the lower courts. By the way, all of these lawsuits were assigned to a Trump appointee. It's not the worst Trump appointee, but he's still a Trump appointee. Then it's going to the Court of Appeals, which is a lot of Trump appointees. Then it's going to a Supreme Court where the guy who gutted the Voting Rights Act, John Roberts, he's the swing justice, and he doesn't even matter. Mm. 
anymore. Like, even if John Roberts woke up tomorrow and decided, you know what? I was completely wrong in my opinion gutting the Voting Rights Act. It would be completely irrelevant because all he would do is join the three liberals and he'd have to convince Neil Gorsuch or Brett Kavanaugh or Amy Coney Barrett to protect the Voting Rights Act. So that's why we need to get to a situation where we're not reliant on Delta and Coca-Cola to protect the voting rights. And this whole thing just showed how fragile it is at, at the end of the day. We're going to take a short break. More with Ari Berman when we return. Welcome back to Battleground. Aria, you know, we've been playing on defense for such a long time, fighting these right-wing efforts, and I kind of would love to think about playing on offense with you. If we were going to expand voting rights, and I know there's now S1 and HR1 on the table, I'd love your expertise here on what one, two, or three things could we do to make voting easier in America? I think the federal legislation that you mentioned is really important, the For the People Act and the John Lewis Voting Rights Advancement Act. And I think they work hand in hand in the sense that the For the People Act puts in place these sweeping democracy reforms and these policies that make it easier for everyone to vote, things like automatic registration and election day registration and two weeks of early voting and restoring voting rights to people with past felony convictions and allowing you to vote by mail no matter where you live. So basically, it says there should be guarantees for voting rights for federal elections no matter what state you live in. And so it treats all voters equally and it treats all states equally, in the sense that there are uniform rules for elections. At the same time, the John Lewis Voting Rights Act says some states are repeat offenders, and there needs to be special protections in place for voters in those states, because these states over and over discriminate. And they discriminated a long time ago, but they're also discriminating today in states like Georgia, for example. They have to approve their voting changes with the federal government because they are continuously discriminating against people in a way that Oregon, for example, is not. So that's why I think these pieces of legislation work hand in hand really well together, because you're basically using the carrot and the stick in terms of your approach. You're expanding access, but then you're also saying, we still have the ability to block bad things. And then I would say, if you look at the state level, I would do what Virginia has been doing. That's a state where before it was run by Democrats, they had pretty restrictive voting legislation. They were not much better than any of the other Southern states. And then in a short period, in 14 months, they passed automatic voter registration. They passed 45 days of early voting. They passed no excuse absentee voting. They restored voting rights to people with past felony convictions. They wrote their own version of the Voting Rights Act, the Voting Rights Act of Virginia, which is the first Southern state to do so. That just shows that if you have a shift in political power and a shift in political consciousness, a lot of things can happen that hadn't happened for a very long time. So I would say there's things that you can point to at the state level, and there's things that you could point to on the federal level. And basically, all of these policies are popular. I mean, every policy I just mentioned has strong bipartisan support. It's just that the Republican Party that's in control of all of these states and that has a veto power over the Senate because of the filibuster, they're just blocking all of it. It occurs to me, our friend, Senator Kristen Cinema from the great state of Arizona, standing out as a holdout on filibuster reform, proclaims to support the Voting Rights Act. Obviously, there's no way to get the Voting Rights Act if you don't figure out a way around the filibuster. Talk a little bit about what's going on in Arizona, because it's interesting. If she were to care a little bit about what is going on in Arizona, there are voter suppression efforts ongoing in that state. 
And really the only way at this moment, as I understand it, to address a Republican-led effort in that state to try to restrict the voter pool, make it harder for Democrats to win, which would directly obviously impact her future political standing, is to think about national legislation that would help ensure basic voting rights protections. But give us a sense, what is going on in Arizona? To me, that's a really good point. I think that there's a lot more leverage to be used with Kirsten Cinema than Joe Manchin. Like, it's really hard for anyone to make an argument to Joe Manchin about what's in his best self-interest when he's the only Democrat in that state. I mean, that's a tough argument. Like, I don't agree with any of the arguments Joe Manchin is making, and I think he's using the worst kind of false equivalents that lots of Republicans are doing when they talk about the filibuster of voting rights or unequal representation in the Senate. But leave aside the fact that he has managed to get himself elected as a Democrat in West Virginia. And maybe you or, or me don't necessarily understand the politics as well as he does. But Arizona, that's a state that has now voted two consecutive elections for Democratic senators. It's a state that voted for Joe Biden. It's a state that's changing demographically in a way that favors Democrats and progressives. And it's a state that's facing an onslaught of voter suppression that directly threatens the constituencies that voted for Kirsten Sinema. Kirsten Sinema didn't win because she won a lot of Republican support. She won because of organizing by the Latino community, by young voters that comes out of efforts to get rid of people like Joe Arpaio in Maricopa County. She was the beneficiary of a progressive movement there. And obviously, yeah, she won the Cindy McCain's of the world too, but that's not enough to get you elected in Arizona. So if you look at what they're trying to do, they're trying to, for example, purge people from an automatic vote by mail list. So usually if you vote by mail in Arizona, you're automatically sent a mail ballot. Now they're saying, if you decide not to vote by mail in Arizona for one or two elections, you're no longer going to get a mail ballot. Even if you still voted, that to me is the crazy thing. Like you're, They're not saying you didn't vote. They're just saying you didn't vote by mail, so therefore you're, they're not going to automatically send you a mail ballot. They're doing things like they're saying that you have to have ID now in a way when you vote by mail if you didn't before. And if you don't have specific forms of ID, you're going to have to then print out a copy of it which is burdensome, but then you're also going to have to mail that documentation. So you're like, you're mailing hmm. all your personal information back to election officials, which is really nuts. The craziest thing they're trying to do in Arizona is the Arizona Senate is doing an audit of all the ballots in Maricopa County. They now have access to the 2.1 million ballots in Maricopa County. And they hired a company led by a Stop the Steal conspiracy theorist to lead the audit there. Now, I don't know what the hell they're trying to prove, but like if I'm the senior senator from Arizona and one of the state legislative bodies just got a hold of all the ballots in the largest counties in the state and put a Trump conspiracy theorist in charge of it, I sure as hell would be thinking about what my options are to try to counteract that kind of thing. And I'd be sitting there and thinking, if I want to preserve male voting, if I want to preserve early voting, if I want to once again have my state approve its voting changes with the federal government, because Arizona was one of those states that was covered by the Voting Rights Act, I would be among the most vociferous champions of getting rid of the filibuster to do this. And that's why there's such an incredible contrast between what Raphael Warnock and John Ossoff are saying about voting rights and the filibuster and what Kirsten Sinema is saying, which is that nobody could even get her to say anything about voter suppression until she posted a tweet a few days ago. And then she's saying, I want to keep the filibuster, which she knows is going to block these bills. So that doesn't get you Manchin, but I think getting you cinema gets you closer to getting Manchin because now he knows like, yeah, I mean, I can rebel on the filibuster, but it doesn't really matter because Cinema's not doing anything anyway. But if he's the only person that's blocking things, at least you have some more leverage. And I imagine, you know, 
she would probably have a more persuasive conversation with him in a lot of ways than Chuck Schumer would have. All right, Ari, we all care about the For the People Act. We want to see it passed. Put on your best prognostication hat. Tell us what's going to happen. What's Senator Schumer going to do? How's this all going to play out? And we'll hold you to it. <laughs> I mean, it's clear that Manchin is not going for the whole For the People Act. So that the best thing that you can hope for is, can his more limited For the People Act that essentially takes five or six provisions on voting and dark money that are more palatable, like having two weeks of early voting in every state, which honestly, most states already have two weeks early voting. So I'm not like super excited about that as one of the things that Joe Manchin wants to keep, but like some basic things that would have 70, 75% support. But then the question is, he's not going to get 10 Republican senators to support this. He keeps saying there is bipartisan support for these provisions. Well, Kamala Harris and James Langford worked on election security for the last two years. And there was no bipartisan support for it at the end of the day. They didn't get anything through the Senate just on election security, which is like the most kind of bare bones, meat and potatoes thing you could do right now. So the question to mention is, fine, let him work on his own version of the For the People Act. But the question is, what happens when there's not 10 Republican votes or even one Republican vote for it? What do you do then? And then you're going to run out of time because I was talking to Alex Padilla a while ago, the new senator from California. And he was saying, well, we really have a very narrow window here because people are going to say, well, we want to work with you, we want to work with you, which by the way, they're not even saying, but even if they did say, we want to work with you, then you start working with them and they say, okay, it's too close to the election. We can't do anything with you anymore. So like Republicans are never going to support you, but even if they proclaim that they want to support you, they're just going to cut them loose once it gets closer to 2022. So short of getting rid of the filibuster, I don't see how you do any of this stuff. The entire time we've been talking, I feel my blood pressure rising, ranging from like, fuck the motherfucking spineless Republican Party to Joe Manchin, you gaslighting piece of shit. Do you not understand? You have to actually govern and you're not going to get a chance to do it if you don't kill the filibuster and pass legislation now. All right. You seep your brain in this. You cover this beat for the last decade or more. Is there any part of this conversation that makes you hopeful? Well, I think what makes me hopeful is there's so much more awareness about voting now. And I think so many people understand how definitional the fight for voting rights is. And I saw a really big sea change in 2020. I mean, all of the work that people did to mobilize voters and to make sure that votes were counted, mm -hmm. that was exponential compared to what was done in 2016. I mean, I think the 2016 election would have turned out very differently if the level of organizing around helping people vote had been there in 2016 and the way that it had been done in 2020. And I mean, yeah, like some of it was annoying, like every single celebrity posting like, let's go vote video at some point in time, it had diminishing returns. But the fact that like everyone from corporate America to LeBron James to everyone with a platform to everyone down to like the local county precinct chair, the entire election was about how can we make sure that people can vote and have their votes counted. And to me, that was such a critical turning point. And then the question is, how do we keep that momentum going? And I think at a time when a lot of people aren't paying attention, because I think, you know, we're outraged about what's happening in Georgia. I think the average person is not paying attention to it at the same level when Trump was there. So I think the question is how to keep people engaged and then how to make this a definitional fight in the sense that the civil rights movement was a fight where civil rights mattered more than anything else. You could disagree. You could have different positions on taxes mm -hmm. or guns or various things. But like you either stood with John Lewis when he was being beaten on the Edmund Pettus Bridge or you didn't. And the civil rights movement forced that conversation. A lot of times it was unpopular 
difficult conversation to have, but they made people pay attention to it. And I think that's the kind of same thing that we have to say now that we can have an election in which not only was there record turnout, but there was a literal attempt to steal the election. And there was a violent insurrection to steal it. And we can't come out of that and then say we're going to rationalize and normalize voter suppression. Like The worst thing that could possibly happen right now is for us to allow the Republican Party to implement the goals of the insurrection through other means. Mm-hmm. That's what I'm most concerned about. I'm hopeful that I think there's more awareness of what's happening. There's so much more awareness of voter suppression in 2021 than there was in 2011 when I first started covering this. But the stakes are also higher. I mean, they just tried to steal an election. So like, I'm still concerned about that when I see them start to change how county board of elections and state election boards function. I'm thinking this isn't a small change. This is what the insurrectionists want being implemented at the state level in advance of 2022 and 2024. So I think that's a five alarm fire for democracy. And I think that's something that we can't lose sight of. And I think that this is going to be the defining issue for the next year, the next two years, because I think it's going to overshadow everything else. Because I don't think you can have a conversation about reproductive rights or about climate change or about guns without understanding how democracy is being undermined or nothing else matters. Ari Berman, if people weren't already fired up (laughs) to fight for voting rights all across the country and make calls and agitate and organize, I think this conversation has certainly gotten there. Thank you for joining us on this podcast. Thanks so much, guys. And great to talk to two of my favorite people on their new podcast. Thanks, Ari. Thank you so much to Ari Berman for joining us on this episode of Battleground. We are hiring. If you have liked the last couple episodes or liked the show for much longer, uh, we're looking for a new producer to join the team working with Faz and I. Go to therecount.com, look at the jobs page. You'll see all the information. Apply. We'd love to have you join this incredible team. Battleground is a podcast from The Recount and iHeartRadio. If you enjoyed this episode, join the team and give us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. Aaliyah Jackson and David Wilson engineered this podcast. Jessica Williams is our assistant producer. And Christian Castro-Rossell is our executive producer. 